Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent uh, another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Great. Well, you're very welcome. Again, as I say, if this is your first time, um, you, you've come at a good time because there's a lot of people here for the first time or the second time or the third time. So we've a lot, yeah, we've a lot, of, a lot of new people. And so please don't feel uh, in any way that you stick out because uh, actually everybody sticks out. So that's okay. Um, but you're, you're so welcome. And uh, I'd love to chat with you at the end as well and just hear more of your story. Um, if, you're, if you're hanging around. So you're very welcome. Um, we are taking our time as a community going through the, the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the, one of the four sort of, um, you know, Gospel messages, I suppose, or Gospel accounts in the Bible that, that give us really detailed information on Jesus and, and what he said and what he did. And, uh, and we've been seeing from the very early stages that it's all about the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God. And and when he started his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming. And then he sets out showing people and telling people what the kingdom of God looks like, how it feels, and how you know you're in it. And beyond that, he sort of invites us and his listeners to join and to come into the kingdom of God, but only after you understand what it's all about. And, and what we're seeing, and we've started to see it last week, and we're seeing it very much here this week, is that as the kingdom of God comes, and, and, and the more sort of ferociously, I suppose, it comes, and the, with more power, we always get opposition. So, so the, the more the kingdom of God is felt and known, the stronger the, the opposition. 
And, and so it's no surprise to us as we, as we get towards the final few bits in Mark's gospel account that the opposition to Jesus and his identity and his mission just increases and increases and increases. It's ferocious. So we're going to spend our time today um, thinking about this issue of opposition, but also um, authority. So um, uh, number one, we're going to see the authority of Jesus being challenged. Uh, secondly, we're going to see the authority of Jesus being suppressed. And thirdly and finally, we'll see the authority of Jesus vindicated. Okay, so it's challenged, it's suppressed, and it's vindicated. Um, so a couple, a couple of weeks ago in our, in our study, we saw Jesus uh, making his, I suppose, his official entry into Jerusalem. You know, he sat on a, on a, a donkey that no one had ever written, ridden. Um, he, he, he went into Jerusalem very sort of self-consciously portraying uh, this idea of a king or the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. This is his official arrival. And, and many people welcomed him in. And it says, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they waved palm branches and put their coats on the floor and they welcomed him in. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and you can go back and listen on the podcast if you need to, but when he arrived, it was a total anticlimax. Right, there was no marching band, there was no official welcome from the religious leaders. In fact, there was a notable absence of any form of official welcome. And last week we saw Jesus then entering on, on the day after his arrival. He entered the temple, he caused a bit of a stir, um, he kicked over some, some tables you know, from the money changers and those who were selling stuff in the temple grounds. He caused like a, a temporary glitch in the machinery of the temple you know, sacrificial system. But it, that also came to nothing. And we saw last week that it was really a sign. Jesus was sort of enacting a, a prophetic sign. You know, uh, the temple, he said, was all show and no fruit. And therefore, God's judgment is upon it. But it's only now that we see Jesus' authority being challenged. It's only now that the authorities step in, because Jesus has clearly come to their attention. So we see the authority of Jesus challenged. Verse 27, you can follow through if you want as we go through. Uh, they, they came, this is Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, it says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay, these are representatives from the Sanhedrin, from the, the council, um, the ruling council, which consisted of 71 members. And the Sanhedrin controlled all matters of religion. If you were a Jew, what the Sanhedrin thought and did and, and prescribed was really important. They controlled all matters of religion. They were also pretty powerful in the political realm as well. They kind of formed a bit of a buffer between Rome um, and, and, and the people of the Jews, the Jews. And so the Sanhedrin were, were it when it came to Judaism. And they came to call this troublemaker to account. And they said to him in verse 28, the sort of delegated party, I suppose, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? In other words, you know, who do you think you are? Coming in here, kicking over tables, causing a stir, who do you think you are? Do you know who we are? We're the, we're the Sanhedrin. We're it, buddy. And you can see here they sought to intimidate him. They sought to gang up on him and sort of outnumber him. You can kind of feel kind of the force of their questions. And yet in verse 29, Jesus takes it with such uh, poise and grace. And he actually responds with a question of his own. He says, I'm not going to answer your question directly. I'm going to give you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. 
And here's this question in verse 29. John the Baptist, remember him? Remember John? Was he from heaven or was he from man? Okay, so John the Baptist and his teaching and his actions and his baptism, was he from heaven or was he from man? In other words, was he a prophet sent from God to speak on God's behalf? Or was he just a man, just a crazy guy who got a bit of a following and came to nothing? What is his authority? Okay, you tell me what you think of his authority and then I'll tell you where mine comes from. Just in case you're not familiar with this character called John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a, was a relative of Jesus, um, just a few months older than Jesus. Uh, and John the Baptist, we see him uh, almost as a forerunner of, of Jesus' ministry. So for a few months or even years before Jesus officially arrived on the scene, John the Baptist went out into the wilderness in, the, in Judea, outside of Jerusalem, and he preached this message saying, prepare yourselves, people. God is on his way. The Messiah is coming. Prepare yourself. Make way. Make way in your hearts. Come back to him. Turn to him. And, and he offered baptism as a sign, as a preparation. You know, prepare your hearts for the Messiah. Be baptized. And, and John, we're told, had a huge following. A huge following. Many, many people went out. He was so influential even though he was this strange, ruggedy preacher guy out in the wilderness. And yet huge crowds came and many people received John's baptism. So on what authority did John do all this, said Jesus? From God or did he just make it up? And we're showing there in verse 31, they sort of confer with each other. They discussed it. You know, it's not a slam dunk. They had to huddle together. And let's face it, they're already in trouble. And they know that. They say, look, if we say John was from heaven, then this, this guy, Jesus, this Galilean preacher man, who's just a, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Okay, why didn't you listen to his message if John was from heaven? But if we say he was just from man, that's, that's probably what we think he is, then the crowd, the people around us, are going to turn against us. It says they were afraid of them. They were afraid of losing popular opinion, just like typical politicians. If I say this, then I'll lose my support, so I can't say this, I'll have to say that. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And so eventually, after their little huddle and their chit-chat, they came to Jesus and said, we don't know. We don't know. That's the best they could come up with. All right? I, I used to get told off quite a bit as a schoolboy, you know, doing stupid stuff. Um, well, not that much, you know, just, just a bit here and there. And, uh, you know, quite often the teacher would say, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? And, of course, the response is often, I don't know, miss. You know, you do know, you just don't want to say. Don't know, can think, don't know. And we've got the brightest minds in Judaism here, PhD after PhD after PhD, and yet they don't know. Don't know, miss. You know, they are intellectually dishonest and they're cowardly. They wouldn't voice their true, uh, their true answer. Don't know. And these are the gatekeepers of religion, right? If you're a Jew, these are the gatekeepers of religion. Quite often this happens, I think, when people confront the claims of Jesus. And if, if, if you or I or anyone is ever confronted with the claims of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he requires of us, it's quite simply not an option to say, I don't know. We don't know. You know, okay, fine. If you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, Okay, if you're either you know, not, not a Western person, maybe you've, you've come in, or, or, or maybe you were never brought up in the church, maybe you've never heard the stories of Jesus, um, fine, 
that's okay. If you're hearing for, for the first time. But, you know, after learning about Jesus and after examining him and after, after reading the Gospels and dialoguing with people, we cannot indefinitely keep saying, we don't know. We cannot keep receiving all this evidence and all this teaching and all this knowledge and keep saying, we don't know. I don't know what I think about Jesus. I don't know if he's from God or if he's just, uh, you know, a, a powerful preacher. I don't know. Uh, St. Mark, who, who, who wrote this uh, gospel account here, has been busy establishing Jesus' authority from the very beginning of his ministry. And we see uh, way back in Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning, Jesus was commissioned uh, by God. God said, you're my son, with him I'm well pleased. Uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And it says Jesus then, you know, straight after that, really went into the local synagogue, you know, the local gathering place for, for Jews. And he was teaching. And it says there that they were astonished. Those people who were listening in the synagogue were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one with authority and not as the scribes. Okay, Jesus taught with, with weight in his words, with, with, with depth, yeah, with, with, with power. Jesus' words were electrifying if you were to sit there and listen to him. The hours would literally tick by and you would forget. In fact, that time when 5,000 people were fed plus others, they forgot the time of the day. And they suddenly realized, hang on a minute, we're all starving here because we've just been hanging on every word. Jesus had authority to cast out demons. And people said, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He had authority to forgive sins. And people said, who is this? No one can forgive sins but, but God alone. He had authority to calm the storm. And his disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And he went to his hometown of Nazareth to do some preaching and some ministry. And they said to him, where does this man get this stuff? What wisdom is given to him? How can he do such mighty works? See, time and again, all through Jesus' encounters with various types of people, they all see and acknowledge his authority. And here we have this group of people representing the gateway of Judaism. And they say, who do you think you are? This religious delegation, you know, it's not, it's not that there's no evidence. It's just they didn't like where the evidence pointed to. Um, they didn't like what it meant for them. It didn't, they didn't like what it meant for their organization, the structures that they had created and cherished, their traditions and their powers. If Jesus is Jesus, then all that stuff will be shaken up. The, the, these carefully guarded power structures will collapse if he is who he says he is. And so this religious delegation don't want it to be true. And so too today. Uh, many, many people challenge the authority of Jesus. It's not because they don't know about him. It's that they don't want what they do know to be true. It's very subtle. They don't want him to be true. They don't want him to have that authority because... If he does, the implications are too drastic for their lives. They can't handle it. So they're unwilling to recognize his authority. They're unwilling to submit to it. They think they've got too much to lose when they're confronted with the claims of Jesus. And so they say, I don't know, maybe. They play intellectual games. They use disingenuous tactics 
So if you are ever asked, or maybe I'm asking you just now, is Jesus from God or was he just a man? What is your answer? Uh, what, what would you say? Are you just going to say, I don't know, and just try and forget about it? But may I um, strongly encourage you that you owe it to yourself and you owe it to those in the world around you, in your world, to be clear on your answer. Is Jesus God or is he just a man? You need to be clear. And how do you get clarity if you don't have that clarity yet, if you can't say for sure yes or no? How do you get clarity? Well, here's a few things. Um, straight off the bat, this is an easy one. Attend church regularly. All right, come, come here. Uh, come here, listen to, to, to Bible teaching, read the Bible for yourself, examine the evidence, study it. You know, or read some stuff, look for the evidence for Jesus. Think about the evidence against him, if you wish. I think it's important to do both. But feel the weight of the importance of that question. Who is Jesus? Count the cost, of course, as you do that. Think about what it might mean to you if you finally accept the authority of Jesus. Learn from those in community, you know, it's a community activity. Faith is a community thing. Learn from others who have wrestled with this before you, others who've questioned and investigated. Listen to them too. But you have to be clear. You can't indefinitely say, I don't know. The authority of Jesus challenged, first of all. But then it seems to get worse because the authority of Jesus we next see is suppressed. Verses 1 through 8 takes it to the next level. And this is often what we see, and I've no doubt our, our, our brothers and sisters and our friends in North Korea and Afghanistan and places such as that know this all too well. Rational debates and accusations, when they fail, you end up with suppression. And so Jesus tells this parable and, and what he's doing is really just giving a context. He's explaining the broader context of the situation he finds himself in um, and, and the situation we read in chapters 11 through to 13. Um, and and, and he, uh, you know, as, he, as he does, quite often he tells a, a parable uh, to, to really open up in, in story form uh, a deep truth. So here he says in verse 1, look, there's a man who one day plants a vineyard. Now, right off, uh, you know, from the start, when, when, the, when the term vineyard is used, particularly to these religious leaders, they would have understood immediately that the vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is God's people, all right? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prominent uh, Old Testament uh, metaphor for the people of God, the vineyard. And so, therefore, it doesn't take a genius to work out that the, the God, sorry, the man figure in this uh, is God himself. Because uh, we've got this, this person who plants this vineyard, uh, he's a man, and he, 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 uh, he plants this. He has this vision for what he wants to do. He designs it. He creates it. He works to, to, to put it into place and to get it going. And then it says he leased it to the tenants. Of course, the tenants, we know this. We all know this. The tenants, therefore, do not own the place. It's not theirs. Um, but they, you know, they have an opportunity to go to it, to work it, to, to bring forth the stuff that's been planted, to tend it. Yes, they get to live off it. Yes, they get to make a profit. But it's not theirs to keep. They give their due to the owner. Right? They pay rent or they pay money or pay in wine or whatever it is. That's how this thing is set up. 
And it says there in due season in verse 2, the man sent a servant to get some of the fruit. Okay, so the servant came on behalf of the owner, came to collect the rent or whatever it was, came to receive the dues that belonged to the master, to the the man, um, the owner. And it says in verse 3, the tenants, they took him, that is the servant, they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And you might think that spells trouble, but the owner tries again in verse 4. He sends another servant. This time they struck his head. They treated him shamefully. You can see it's getting worse. Verse 5, he sent yet another, and this one they actually killed. And so he sent many others, it says in verse 5. And they did the same thing. Some they beat, some they kicked out, some they killed. This pattern is developing when God sends messengers to the people of Israel. Final option in verse 6. There was one other, a beloved son. Of course they're going to listen to my son, said the owner. See, not only is there a moral imperative to give the owner his dues, you know, his rent, but here there is a legal imperative, a legal right, because the son is the heir. The servants were just there in the name of the owner. The son is the heir. It is his right to the estate. It is his fruit. Surely they will respect my son, says the owner. And in verse 7, it's almost like they see him coming. This is the heir, they said. They knew who they were dealing with. Let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. They recognized his authority. They knew he was the heir, and yet they refused to submit to it, and they suppressed his authority. This faulty logic, as if you could kill the rightful owner of this and then take it for yourself. Logic and rationality went out the window, often does in these circumstances. It usually shows something deeper, something greater than logic that is driving this suppression. And for the tenants here on the field, or for the religious leaders in the temple, it was a desire to retain and build their own power. And they will do anything. They will use games, they will use tricks, they will use manipulation in order to accomplish what they achieve. As Jesus tells the story between God and Israel, we get the picture of what he's saying. God sends prophets to Israel. He sends messengers. He sends his representatives to come and take his fruits. In the story, of course, the fruit is probably riches from the produce or wine or money or whatever. That's rightfully the owners. But then when God looks at the vineyard Israel, his covenant people, he looks to receive that which is rightly his. We're not talking about wine or money here to God. We're talking about praise. We're talking about honor. We're talking about glory. We're talking about worship. We're talking about lives fully sold out for God, rejoicing in his grace, enjoying his salvation, uh, resting in his provision. In the history of Israel, as we see it in the Old Testament, these multiple representatives, servants, prophets, men of God, etc., women of God, they were eaten, they were chewed up, they were beaten, they were killed. It's proven record. The people, as represented in this case by the leaders, didn't want to hear. They didn't want to receive it. They didn't want to give up their power structures. And so what do they do? They suppressed the authority of God. They stopped their ears. They wouldn't even listen to the son, the heir, the legal holder of the farm, the vineyard, the beloved of the father. Surely they'll listen to him. And yet they didn't. They killed him. 
Today we've been thinking and praying already, haven't we, about ruthless suppression and persecution of Christians across the globe. That uh, agency I referred to earlier, Open Doors, estimates that around 360 million Christians are currently facing severe forms of persecution across the world. 360 million. And as we've seen on the watch list, Afghanistan has topped it. North Korea, second. Not because North Korea is going great, but because Afghanistan is going so badly. But here in this text, it is not a foreign state that is interfering with the faith of the people. It's not the foreign state that is trying to suppress Jesus. It is God's own people. It's the religious leaders who are trying to suppress the Son. This opposition comes from inside the church. It's it's hard to imagine, is it not? It just makes the story so much more shocking. The very people who were poised to recognize and receive the kingdom of God are the very ones who opposed it, who, who obstructed its coming, who sought to suppress the kingdom and its messengers and its prophets. And what we're seeing here continues to this very day inside the church. It's my observation that this modern form of internal opposition is not limited to any particular type of church or any particular denomination or any certain theology or any particular model of doing and being church. I've seen it across the board. Hard opposition to the coming kingdom of God from people who are inside the church, people who obstruct to oppose the kingdom of God today do so for the same reasons they did it then with Jesus. Because they recognize that the authority of Jesus requires too much. The kingdom is too radical. It is too costly. It means they have to let go of things they cling tightly to. They crave power. They crave identity. They crave recognition. And they are unwilling to relinquish this. And so when they see the kingdom of God coming, much like these uh, leaders here, they feel fear. They sense anger. They try to usurp the authority of Jesus. They seek to confuse. They aim to suppress. They aim to build opposition. Whatever it takes to suppress the authority of Jesus. You know, Jesus arrives on the scene in the Gospel of Mark like a A fast-moving freight train with momentum and speed. And Jesus arrives and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's these two parallel rails that his message, he and his message travel along. And we can think of those two rails as two reactions to to Jesus and, and his message about the kingdom of God. And the first rail, I suppose, uh, first reaction is one that welcomes the kingdom. Right? That says, Hosanna! Yes! Finally it's here. Praise God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are glad. They want it. They need it. They, what can I do to get into that kingdom? But the second rail over here travels in parallel. 
And that's people who hear the news of the kingdom, they see it coming, they refuse the message, they refuse the mission of Jesus, they oppose it and they reject it because it's not working on their terms. And those two rails are traveling in parallel throughout the entire gospel. And the kingdom is coming. And it terminates at the cross. That's where this is heading. And so how do you tell the difference between the two? And how do you know what rail you're on? Jesus said, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So here's the difference. For some, the kingdom is good news, and they repent and believe. They turn and trust. They take it into themselves. They build their lives on that. For others who think of it as a threat, they don't repent and believe. They don't turn to Jesus. They think they can own him, control him, put him in the pocket. For others, the kingdom is a threat. These are religious people, don't forget. But they both arrive at the cross. And either the cross will crush you, or it will be the making of you, depending on what rail you're on. So we've seen the authority of Jesus challenged. We've seen the authority of Jesus suppressed. Finally, let's look at the authority of Jesus vindicated. Verses 9 through 10. The tenants thought they won in this par- parable. Right? They, they thought they'd ended it by destroying the sun. That's great, we get to keep all this ourselves. But evidently they had forgotten one character in the story. And that is the owner. Because the owner's not going anywhere. Verse 9. What will the owner do? Don't forget, it's his vineyard. He has the rights over it. Okay? He is the owner. He is the creator. He is the God figure in this uh, par- parable. What is he going to do? What would you do if you were the owner in this scenario? And all this shenanigans and all this death and insult and shameful treatment. What would you do? You'd be angry. You'd be enraged. You would, you would want justice to be done, and rightly so. They took your son. And so it says here, of course, we know what he'll do. He'll come and destroy the tenants, and he'll give the vineyard to others. He'll take the keys from the old tenants and pass them to the new ones. They've had their time, they've had their opportunity, and they've blown it, and so they have been removed from office. Jesus said to the religious leaders who seek to suppress, do you think you've won with your games? Do you think your games have helped you? Have you not read the scriptures? Verse 10. Of course, of course they've read the scriptures. That's what they do every day. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Right, the cornerstone here, um, otherwise known as the capstone, uh, would have been and still remains today one of the most important parts of the whole structure. Metaphorically, it's the most significant stone in the whole thing. Right, the stone that you people, you builders, you tenants rejected, that is you killed or are seeking to kill, has become the most significant part in the whole 
uh, setup operation of God. Right? You thought you could kill him and that would end, but it didn't end. It won't end. You thought you'd won when actually you've lost. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Of course, Jesus' prophecy here comes true. The beloved son is taken by the tenants. You know, these chief priests, these scribes, summarizing the Sanhedrin. We'll see in a few weeks, they played their games. They worked their politics. They used maximal manipulation to get what they wanted. They sowed confusion. They made outright, outright threats. Then they killed the son. They threw him out of the vineyard. Okay, Jesus was crucified outside the city gates. And Jesus was betrayed. He was tried in this pathetic excuse for some sort of pretend justice system. Justice and rationality went out the window. They wanted him dead. They didn't care for justice. They didn't seek righteousness. They just wanted him gone. Then the inheritance was ours. That's what they were saying to themselves on the night he was betrayed. They managed to convince a weak Roman governor through more games, more threats, more hints, more manipulation, more games. And they got the son crucified. That's Jesus. The stone was rejected by the builders, thrown away. But on the third day, you know this, that all changed. All of heaven broke out on the third day. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone when Jesus rose from the grave. He went from being the rejected stone to being highly exalted before all people and certainly in the eyes of his Father. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes, says the psalmist, quoted by Jesus. You rejected him, but God honoured him. His authority was, was vindicated. Who is this, we will say? Even death could not hold him. Even the waves did what they were told. Even the demons fled in Jesus' name. And now the grave could not hold him. The beloved son, there he stands, now living in the fullness of life. Your games have come to nothing. His authority has been vindicated. You see, even the most vicious challenges, even the most backhanded arguments, even the most violent suppression to death, cannot stop the kingdom of God and his people. Because the authority of Jesus has been vindicated, opposition to his mission is only ultimately temporary. It will ultimately fail because Jesus' authority has been vindicated. And when his authority has been vindicated, you and I get to share that vindication with him. If you are of faith in Jesus, if you truly follow him, anyone who has opposed you because of your faith, anyone who has twisted your words, anyone who has mocked you, anyone who has hurt you or scorned you for your faith, anyone who has brought violence against you or the threat of violence, will one day be forced to recognize through gritted teeth the supremacy of Jesus and his authority. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they say, isn't it? Philippians 2. Jesus has overcome. The victorious king is coming. The church is safe with him. She shall prevail. 
What happened to Jesus happened to us. If he dies, we die. If he lives, we shall live with him. We'll follow him to the grave. Then we'll follow him to fullness of life. Let's pray.